The brightest minds in health policy and innovation, interviewed by leaders in community health. This week, Conversations on Healthcare welcomes Education Secretary Miguel Cardona on the impact of COVID-19 and the need for stability in American schools. We have worked closely with all states to make sure that that message is there. We supported our superintendents that are making decisions to protect students and staff, and we'll continue to do that. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter on Conversations on Healthcare. This is Conversations on Healthcare. Our guest is U.S. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, who holds the nation's top education job as America's schools tackle the COVID health challenge and the learning losses it's created. Secretary Miguel Cardona first gained national attention while serving as Connecticut Education Commissioner, where he navigated the safe return of students to classrooms in his state. Secretary Cardona has been a teacher and a principal, fulfilling President Biden's promise to put an educator in the nation's top education job. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, great to be with you uh, both, uh, Mark and Margaret. Um, I'm glad to be on the show and uh, honored to uh, be able to engage in a conversation about a topic I love so much, our kids and our schools. Absolutely. Uh, You know, seven school boards are challenging Virginia Republican Governor Glenn uh, Youngkin's executive order banning mask mandates in schools. And the school boards say masks are needed uh, to ensure the safety and welfare of all students. What's your take on the situation? And is there anything that your department can do? Yeah, well, you know, my message from day one has been very clear. And by day one, I mean, March 2020, before I was Secretary of Education, when I was Commissioner of Education. And it stems from my feelings as a father, you know, there's nothing more valuable to me than my own children and their safety and their health, right? So uh, one thing we did early on, and part of the reason why Connecticut was successful in safely reopening schools is we relied very closely on our health experts. It is a health pandemic. We need to keep it in the hands of our health experts. Um, I I had more conversations with epidemiologists than with my own family members uh, Mm -hmm. for so many of those months. And, And the reason why we did that is because they have an understanding of how disease spreads, and how to keep ourselves safe, right? That hasn't changed. I think what has changed is the fatigue across the country. Uh, we're two years in. I remember planning for two weeks of uh, disrupted learning. Mm-hmm. We're in our second year. Uh, so the fatigue has increased. I also think politicization of uh, many of the strategies to keep our, our families and our schools safe. It, it's become political in so many places, uh, and I think intentionally, and, and that's unfortunate. So, you know, the leaders and the educators today have much more to contend with. They have not only the pandemic, but also a growing fatigue and um, politics getting in the way of good public health policy. So uh, what we've done, uh, it, it happened when the Delta spike happened, if you recall, uh, you know, that happened maybe two weeks before school started in the fall. We really uh, were very strong at the Federal Department of Education communicating that it is the responsibility of our superintendents and our boards to protect our students and our staff. Um, a safe working environment, a safe learning environment is critical. Uh, and we still believe that. And we um, have worked closely with all states to make sure that that message is there. We supported our superintendents that are making decisions to protect students and staff. Um, and we'll continue to do that. I, I think really everyone wants our kids in schools. We all know the benefits of in-person learning. We have to leave public health to the experts. Um, but I also understand we're, we're all fatigued. We all want a day when masks are not required. 
but right now we know, especially with Omicron, we have to do everything in our power to keep our children safe. And that's following those mitigation strategies that the CDC recommends. Well, Secretary, uh, thank you for those comments. And uh, masking has been polarizing. Mandatory masking in the schools has been a polarizing issue. But now uh, the Los Angeles and the Washington DC school districts uh, are putting in place COVID vaccine mandates for students. I think they're set to begin soon. I imagine uh, this will, will also create quite a bit of controversy. What are your thoughts about keeping students out of school if they're not vaccinated? You know, I talked to uh, the mayor of New Orleans maybe three, four weeks ago. Uh, I was visiting New Orleans schools and we had a conversation about that. She too was implementing a, a requirement uh, for uh, vaccinations for students uh, in the schools. And I recognize that vaccines are the most important tool we have. Uh, it, it really is to prevent disease spread and to prevent severity. Uh, to keep children out of hospitals, to keep communities safe, not just for the student that's vaccinated, but for their vulnerable family members or those in our community who are unable to get vaccines, even if they wanted to. Um, you know, with regard to the requirements, uh, you know, those are local and state decisions. I think uh, state leaders and local leaders need to understand the implications of that. Uh, I strongly encourage not only vaccines, but also that our schools uh, have a role in promoting vaccination uh, we've set up clinics throughout our country. Uh, I visited many um, with Dr. Murphy and others just to promote the importance of schools having a role here, pediatricians having a role partnering with schools. Um, as far as the mandates are concerned or the laws, I'll leave that up to the local officials. Uh, but I do know that in places where vaccination percentages are higher, there's less disruption to school and there was less hospitalization, which is obviously the goal for any parent to protect your child and protect your child is so important. And Mr. Secretary, you know that our organization here in Connecticut operates school-based health centers across the state, uh, providing care to 17,000 students, including their mental health needs. But in the entire country, only a fraction of students receive the, that type of service. But there's good news, I hope, or hopes on the way. The Bipartisan Hallways to Healthcare Act has been introduced in the Senate. Uh, it would lead to greater investment in school-based health centers. I'm wondering, is there anything else the administration can do to push this idea? Sure, yeah, I know a little bit about what you do uh, in my previous roles and, um, you know, uh, having um, people that I know very well working within a community health center. The reality is the days of us thinking that our schools are places where it's only about reading, writing, and arithmetic. Those are long gone. We need to think holistically about our children. I was fortunate to serve in the Meriden Public Schools for over 23 years. And I saw uh, as the needs progressed with our students, we needed to evolve in our thinking. And you know, the partnership with the Community Health Center uh, to provide uh, support services, uh, mental and behavioral support services to students, dental services, um, just the, the, the health needs of our students they're present in our schools. So the more we can remove barriers by providing good partnerships with community organizations uh, like a community health center that provide some of these services, the better the students are able to learn um, and we can focus on teaching and learning. So I am encouraged by uh, the growing sentiment, bipartisan sentiment, that we must care for the holistic needs of our students. And at the Department of Education, we haven't been sitting idle waiting for this to happen. Day one, uh, we made it very clear 
that as we uh, are thinking about how to utilize the $130 billion that the president and Congress passed for the American Rescue Plan, safe school reopening obviously is, is the priority. So ensuring you have PPEs, ensuring you have all the tools you need to safely reopen. But the second thing on our list and on purpose was the social emotional well-being of our students and our staff. Oftentimes we leave that out. Our, our students, their families, and our uh, educators, our dedicated educators, uh, we've all experienced trauma. So ensuring that as we reopen our schools, we reimagine the role of social and emotional well-being, uh, access to mental health supports. So we've really prioritized it. We uh, released a first of its kind uh, uh, support manual for districts in in their language, not in government speak, not in you know bureaucratic language, in their language on how to implement uh, mental health supports, how to uh, learn from colleagues across the country. And in each of our reopening guidance documents, we emphasize the importance of mental health and uh, social and emotional well-being. So for me, it's critically important that as we reopen and reimagine schools, we don't go back to what it looked like before where it was insufficient. We must design and embed within our reopening strategies, uh, social and emotional supports for students and access to mental health support. So we've encouraged use of ARP funds for that. We've provided guidance, we lifted best practices, and we're gonna continue to push so that the ARP money is being used for those uh, reasons, for those purposes. Well, Secretary, uh, thank you for those comments. And uh, we certainly have seen an evolution in, in many ways over these last uh, 15 or 20 years, as you say. One of the uh, changes that we saw this year, uh, over the last two years, really, uh, was the level of engagement of parents uh, and often very unhappy parents around some of these issues uh, mm -hmm. in the schools, around masking and around the response to COVID and it kind of raised the question of who, who do the public schools really belong to? And there's been some debate popping up uh, that we need to do better at listening to parents, though I know you've always tried and that parents are really the clients of public schools. Is that, is that the right worldview to have that the parents uh, are the clients and, and that's who the school systems really have to organize around or what, is, what have been your thoughts as you watch this unfold over the last two years? You know, I've seen, um... President Biden articulated very clearly. Um, not only did he start as president uh, during a pandemic, but uh, during a time where our country was divided. And he uh, aimed to restore the soul uh, of our country and, and bring folks together. I mean, the work to get to the infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure plan uh, demonstrates the commitment of uh, working with different perspectives. And we still have ways to go. There are a lot of uh, folks that are divided on certain topics, whether it's masks, mandates, or, or whatever. Um, it's really important that uh, we recognize that schools unite. Uh, schools are hubs of the community that bring people together. And it's really important as we uh, reopen schools and, and really think about the next chapter of what education looks like across the country, that we're not limited by listening only to those who share our thoughts, that we entertain uh, the various perspectives that exist and understand that there's a lot of emotion behind it. Uh, there's a lot of passion behind it, but um, it's the American thing to do to listen to different perspectives and come together, uh, especially around our students, around our children uh, to improve education. So I think it is important that uh, all families have access to uh, be heard 
and that the different perspectives are taken into account. At the end of the day, it's critically important also that uh, we have uh, boards of education that represent families. In many cases, especially in the experiences that I've had, uh, board members are elected um, and they represent the different parts of the community. So we must um, recognize that democracy prevails and that we have a system set up where we should be listening to parents. But I also would argue we need to be listening to our students um, and make sure that their voice is being taken into account as we think about how do we reimagine education. Our students have experienced this uh, firsthand and they also have say in what education should look like moving forward. Well, that's, that's uh, such a good observation uh, that an American solution is really gonna require listening to voices across the spectrum, uh, including that of teachers. But you know, you bring an interesting perspective to Washington, and I wonder if you might reflect a little on it. You know, you were a teacher, a principal, uh, and you're also, uh, your experience as an English language learner. How have all those helped shape your thinking as you lead uh, this really uh, very important uh, department in an important time in American history? You know, it, it, it's a time that requires uh, the ability to problem solve uh, with those whose perspectives are different, uh, to engage with people with whom you don't typically engage. As I mentioned, I became good friends with epidemiologists over the last two years, something that I never learned in, in uh, preparatory school for, for uh, education. But I, I'll give credit to Meriden, Connecticut, the, uh, the city where I was born and raised, where I went to school. It's such a diverse community. And as a second language learner, uh, I learned English second and living um, in a community that's so diverse and, and myself being bicultural, I, I, I understood how to code switch and culture switch and understand different ways of doing things. That helped me during the pandemic understand the different perspectives and keep that mentality that uh, just because someone doesn't think like you doesn't mean that they shouldn't be heard or that they don't bring value to the table. And um, I think that's what the president was looking for, someone that can go into the moment and, and recognize that there is no easy linear solution to this, but is willing to engage different folks, listen, and come up with a solution that is best for students, number one, and that can lead our country forward. Uh, so the biculturalism, I always say, is a superpower um, and an asset for me, coming from a very diverse community. Um, and then being uh, educated and, and having the opportunity, the privilege, to serve as an educator in a community as diverse as ours, uh, in my opinion, were really good prerequisites to the problem solving and the um, what I call intentional collaboration that I do today as Secretary of Education. Well, it's great to have uh, educators like yourself in top places uh, in Washington right now. And uh, we also have uh, another person in pretty high places who comes from education, and that's First Lady Dr. Jill Biden, who's still teaching at a community college today, uh, even uh, as First Lady. Are you getting any feedback or advice from uh, Dr. Biden on uh, what we should be doing in education, what you should be doing? You know, she's great. I who better than her to, to really, you know, show what education can be and just be such a great advocate for uh, the education system. I, I always say my job is easier because the, the best advisor to the president is, uh, is an educator. And, um, you know, I had the privilege of traveling with the first lady last week. We visited a school, a community college uh, to announce, not only to see the great work they're doing, but also to announce 
$198 million uh, in grants to help support basic needs of students um, so that they can go to school. Needs like childcare, needs like food insecurities. So we were announcing this and you know, in my conversations with her, it's very clear. We need to make sure that we're providing opportunities for all students to go to school, to study, to reach their potential. Um, and I know she's still teaching and I know uh, her passion for, for education across the country stems from the inspiration she gets from her students. So it's always great to have conversations with her um, to talk about education and our path forward in our country. Well, Mr. Secretary, we wanna thank you for joining us and hope you uh, will have you at some time in the future. And uh, thanks to our audience for joining us for this important talk. You can learn more about conversations on healthcare and sign up on our email at uh, chcradio.com. Mr. Secretary, thank you for your leadership, your inspiration, and the work that you do on behalf of all American citizens. Thank you, President Maselli, uh, Vice President Flinter, for, your, uh, for, for the conversation, but more importantly, for the work you do to promote health uh, across our community, across our state, and across our country. Be well. Thank you, Secretary. everybody. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? President Joe Biden has said his administration will provide 1 billion free at-home rapid COVID-19 tests to Americans starting in late January, and retail outlets have been selling out of these antigen tests. Let's take a look at some common questions about these tests. The rapid antigen tests are viral tests that check for the presence of SARS-CoV-2 viral proteins in a sample from a person's nose or mouth to help determine if the person is currently infected with the coronavirus. Some of these require a prescription, but the ones people are most familiar with are the self-tests that can be purchased over the counter and can be performed entirely at home with a person taking their own sample, running the test, and reading out the result within 15 to 30 minutes. The tests are similar to pregnancy tests in that they detect proteins in a specimen using antibodies embedded in a test strip. 13 fully at-home, over-the-counter antigen tests now have FDA authorization. These types of tests are generally reliable, but they aren't as sensitive as molecular diagnostic tests such as the PCR test, which can take hours or days for people to get their results. A positive result on a rapid antigen test is very likely to be correct, but a negative test doesn't necessarily mean someone isn't infected. The tests are more accurate in people with symptoms compared with someone who doesn't have symptoms. It is not yet known how well rapid antigen tests fare against the Omicron variant although most tests are able to detect it. While some early lab tests suggested a possible reduction in sensitivity, so far clinical testing of patients show the antigen tests perform similarly against Omicron as previous variants, the director of the National Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering told us. However, Omicron infections appear to have a shorter incubation period, or length of time from exposure to first symptom, which could mean people are testing sooner after infection than they were previously. 
that could make it appear that the tests are less sensitive, even if they aren't. In addition to the federal government's new covidtest.gov website, these rapid tests are sold through retail stores and online, and some local governments are also offering them to their residents. The CDC suggests taking one of these tests before gathering indoors with people from other households. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Students of public health are often tasked with devising interventions for addressing some of health's biggest challenges. And for Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health students Dan Wexler and Priya Patel, their idea netted an award and launched a business idea at the same time. The students were tasked with addressing food insecurity in underserved parts of the world, including in neighborhoods in their own backyard. Families living in high poverty, low resource area, and finding fresh, affordable, healthy food in neighborhoods with no grocery stores or food markets. They thought of the current trend of healthy mail order meals services like Blue Apron and wondered what if we modified that business model to serve the needs of those living in food deserts? Wexler and his partner sourced food delivery companies that could provide prepackaged meal kits with all ingredients included, even spices, dressings, and recipes. And instead of home delivery approach, they designed refrigerated kiosks that could easily be placed in local neighborhoods. Wexler says they wanted to make the idea of healthy eating and meal preparation as simple as possible. I think the biggest change is that there is no delivery system door-to-door per se, and that by going and setting up these kiosks in the community, you can have a very lean design. You can have you don't need a storefront, you don't need to pay for shipping, you don't need to have inbox refrigeration. And you are very much addressing the need of access by physically saying, hey. Here is healthy food. It's convenient because everything you need is in the box. The directions are simple and very picture-based. There's a lot of literacy issues. And so just really thinking about how can we take all those lean design principles to facilitate access that really, uh, I think, make it a, a solution that has the potential for impact. And they also conducted research with local ethnic groups to create recipes that would resonate with their families. And we just went down to the community and did taste testing at the farmer's market and talked to people and said, you know, do you like this? What do you want to be able to eat for dinner? How do you want to cook? So basically we have some dishes that are similar, similar textures, similar spices. Uh, One thing that we found is there's a little bit of contention between parents who want to eat more traditional foods and kids who want to eat more American foods. And we tried to alleviate that and bridge those gaps to one of our recipes, for instance, is a chicken pot pie pasta. So it's kind of American. It's fun sounding, but also we use a lot of traditional seasonings and spices. Customers can simply walk to the kiosk and purchase their meal kits with the snap cards or cash. And they added benefits. The kiosk will be run by the residents of the neighborhood, giving them an opportunity to purchase the kiosk and run them like a franchise. 
offering an economic benefit to the community as well. Their idea earned them the Rabobank MIT Food and Agro-Business Innovation Prize and $15,000 in startup money to launch their enterprise. A low-cost, portable, healthy meal service placed in portable kiosks in food desert neighborhoods, offering families a simple solution to address the problem of poor nutrition, providing an economic opportunity at the same time. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.